Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to discuss, in two parts, Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities, with the subtitle Reflections on the Origin and Spread of Nationalism. Now before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I like to explain philosophical concepts, ideas, texts to help make uh, your philosophical journey a little easier. So if you're new here, you can subscribe and see videos I release every single week, sometimes twice a week. Check out a catalog of more than 250 episodes I already have up. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form if you're just interested in the audio, and you can find that on any platform. If you found this in podcast form, you can find me on YouTube, where sometimes the episodes are accompanied with video if you're into that at all. If you do those things, like share, subscribe, it helped me out a lot. On a podcast platform, you can leave five stars. That'd be great. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory and uh, and my God at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. Links for all these things in this, the description. And uh, yeah, go check those things out. That would help me out a lot. Now let's jump into this text. And that, and this is a text that I never thought I'd actually read because you know you just chances are most of you have heard this term, imagined communities, and we just kind of take that to mean what we think it means, which is probably correct. But there's a lot here. And Anderson really, this text is a lot more poetic and abstract than I thought it was going to be. And there are a number of complexities here that I'm not going to be able to convey to you because they would take hours to unravel. And so the point that I'm making is that you shouldn't let this text fall by the wayside just because you know the term, and chances are you know what imagined communities, what it, what it means. There's a lot here, uh, and this text shouldn't just be relegated to knowing what the, the title means. Now, this text, like most, begins with a preface, and this is the preface to the second edition, where he largely in the preface outlines the ways that he had mistranslated some things, misinterpreted some things, and it's not important to go into the details of all of that, but it is important to know that the backdrop of the first time he wrote the book, the first edition, he was writing this book at a time when they were, or thinking about this book, at a time when there were a great number of conflicts in Indochina. So uh, conflicts between Vietnam, China, Cambodia, uh, Laos. Maybe Laos didn't, didn't fit into the mix there. In any case, what we saw were a number of uprising socialist states uh, very inspired by Marx and Marxism, that were combating one another. So this prompted Anderson to ask, okay, even though these revolutions are inspired by the same ideological framework, be in this case a Marxist one, why are there still conflicts? And part of the answer is the fact that they had differing ideas about how those revolution should unfold in accordance with their specific nation. So how does nationalism affect a revolution? How does nationalism come to seep in and infect the minds of some people to make them just unaware of other possibilities? How does it shape who we are? And this isn't a problem reserved between socialist states. There are embedded nationalisms, at least in conflicts between capitalist and socialist states as well. So this entire book is going to be Anderson trying to unravel how the state emerged, 
and what the state does to people and why it is so stubborn. Why is it sticking around? Even though it is a new concept, if we think about the totality of human history, the nation is a very new thing, it it really embraces a conservative ethos, and it's one that seems to not want to go away. And that puts us here into the introduction, which is also chapter one, where here he really starts to unpack this, this moment in time when there were these conflicts between Vietnam and China and Cambodia, to say that, among other socialist states in the area, that there are all these conflicts unfolding in the late 70s. Now, these conflicts were conducted in national terms for Anderson. They weren't necessarily conducted by variations in interpretations of Marx's doctrine of, of a possible socialism. They were done at the behest of a commanding nationalist trend or by nationalism determining how these people should exist in the world and who are they to be in combat with. Now, this isn't totally surprising if we look back at the history of Marx and Marxism, where much of Marx's work was filtered through the nationalist lens, where he would only consider nations and their specificity as, or the workers within nations, within the specificity of that nation. Now, for anyone listening, you might be wanting to pull your hair out at me saying this, because ultimately, Marxism and a possible Marxist revolution is an international endeavor. You cannot free the proletariat in one nation and just have other nations not uh, the same follow there. Otherwise, it'll just, I don't even know what you'd call that. It would just be some kind of quasi-Marxist revolution. And it would completely ignore the dialectical nature of any possible workers' revolution, where you cannot catalyze it. And what I mean by that is you can't have someone just come in and say, oh, today the revolution begins. The revolution unfolds historically in Marx. It's something that is going to arise through a necessity that is produced by the capitalist system, not something that somebody can just march in and say, today's the day. And so if there is a nation that just frees its proletariat or a proletariat is for ostensibly freed in a specific nation, this isn't a Marxist revolution. This is a specifically national revolution. And of course, if that occurs, the actual conditions of that revolution are going to be colored by that nation, by the codes that underwrite that nation, what language that nation speaks, what, what are its views on social policy, on, on healthcare, education, and so on. Now, as far as the nation is concerned, it is a paradoxical entity in that the nation is, on the one hand, it is historically new, yet extremely conservative and antiquated. It doesn't want to change. It doesn't want to mutate at all. It is, at the same time, everyone within it, or everyone seems to have a nationality, but every nation is different from every other. And they are politically powerful, but at the same time without being philosophically powerful. So that first one, that they are historically new, as well as being antiquated and conservative, that's, I feel like that's pretty self-explanatory. Whereas the second and third points that Anderson gives us, that everyone is to have a nation or a nationality, yet every nation or nationality is different. 
So here, I guess we could think of this in Hegel's terms, where we negate the negation, which is to say that even though there is a difference between nations, and that would be a negating factor in trying to find a common thread between them, what we can find as being common is the very nature of them being nations themselves. So we negate that one negating factor of them being different, and then we see what unites them in the common notion of nationhood. Now this is my attempt at, a, at an abstract way to understand this paradox, but if we actually consider real people and the way that nationhood seeps into the minds of people, often people will think that their nation is distinct in every single way from every other nation for any number of reasons. And this will culminate into a belief that their nation is better than every other nation, that their values are superior, that their form of nationhood is the only real one. So if we consider it in this way, it truly is a paradox in that everybody is expected to have a nation, to be, to have a nationality, but at the same time, to believe their nation to be the only true one. And then the third paradox is that, to repeat, that the nation is politically powerful while be, being philosophically weak. And this is fairly simple to grasp because the nation sort of runs on inertia. It has set up an entire political establishment in pretty much every nation that keeps itself going without actually interrogating itself and without actually interrogating uh, the very political structures that keep it afloat. And this is partly due to the fact of the point that I just mentioned that people believe their nation to be the absolute best one. Now, even though I say this, uh, it's important to acknowledge that, of course, so many nations on earth have had civil wars break out where people believe their nation not to be the best one. But civil war wars often occur because there is the belief that the nation can aspire to be the best one. And only under the right command of perhaps a rebel fa faction can this nation realize its true potential and really rise up to the occasion to become that best nation. So all of these factors lead Anderson to say that the nation is an imagined political community. It is imagined both as inherently limited and sovereign. So it is limited in that it has borders that butt up against other nations. And it is sovereign in that it is isolated, yet is among other nations. So it is its own thing among other nations that are their own thing. Now, by imagined, he says that he uses this terminology because within a nation, most members won't actually meet most other members, yet they will all be bound together by a mutual love of this thing called the nation, or they will be bound by the various values, languages, cultures that have become synonymous with that nation. And to, you know, one way I like to think about this, the really the absurdity of, of the idea of the nation is that somebody in Alaska has a lot more in common. So being in the United States, for those who might not know, Alaska in, in the United States has a lot more in common with a Canadian from the Yukon than the person in Alaska will have from someone in Houston, Texas. And the idea there 
is that when we consider other factors like geography, relationships to perhaps indigenous communities in these areas where there are um, large amounts of them in northern Canada and in uh, northern United States, what we see is that these people have a lot more in common with one another than people within the same nation. And the same can extend, you know, you can use any number of analogies here. Somebody in, I guess, maybe Eastern India has more in common with someone from Western China than they do with someone in Western India, perhaps. Like, you know, a small rural, rural population uh, in each place, even though they belong to different nations, they have a lot more in common, yet they are expected to be separated. They are expected to be different from one another. And you might say, oh, well, yeah, because they speak different languages. Well, the thing is, too, that especially in this example with India and China, is that there are many communities there, uh, rural communities, isolated communities who don't speak the national language, that will speak their own language uh, still to this day. And this was especially true 100 or so years ago when really when uh, the idea of the nation started to come into fruition. Now, rather than thinking of nations in accordance with their ideological affiliation, by looking at a nation and saying, oh, that's a liberal nation, or another one and saying, oh, that's a fascist nation, and so on, he suggests instead that we think of nations as a kinship, or even as a religion, something people just mindlessly submit to. And I, and I say that, I don't mean it with a negative connotation, but you just are born into it. You're given very little option to think otherwise, and you are expected to adopt its tenets, its views and beliefs. And so it's no surprise then that people are willing to die for their nation, which is a very, <laughs> very strange thing. And that puts us into chapter two, where we're going to talk more about this idea of dying for a nation, uh, titled Cultural Roots. So what is the connection between death and the nation? And to think this through, he thinks about the phenomenon of the tomb of the unknown soldier, who is implied to be part of that nation, or to be part of a nation, just belonging to some nation and trying to leave room for the fact that they do have some affiliation with a nation. Now, we don't see the same thing as far as ideology goes. There's no such thing as the tomb of the unknown Marxist or the tomb of the unknown liberal. And so there is something about the nation then that goes beyond ideological lines, that seeps into the mind and into our cultures and into our value systems, that comes to be associated with the very conditions of one's living and therefore one's death. Where a death occurs, and it is, it is a death that is experienced by that nation, by that arbitrary line in the sand that has been crafted out through any number of means. And then it comes to be a real, embodied, lived experience that follows you into death. So it is very similar to a religion in this way. It's a way to come to terms with death in some cases and to understand the significance of a death. So the idea of nationalism began to really arrive, and I'm going to qualify this with some, some other points, but it began to emerge in the 18th century 
during the time when uh, enlightenment, the enlightenment was going on, when rationalism was developing, and people began to become somewhat disillusioned with religion and the church. And so the nation stepped in to explain then things that religion used to explain. It stepped in to be that reassuring explanation as to why people act the way they do. So people could say, oh, that person acts that way because they're of this nation or that one of another nation. And we die for these very reasons, for the nation. Now, it's important to note that even though the nation really began, began to gain prominence and ground at this time, its roots extend much further back. And there are the kernels of a kind of nationalism within, you know, we find them in Plato, certainly talking about Greece or Athens, uh, Athens, of course, not being or being a nation state. You know, there are these ideas of people being bound together within an artificially constructed boundary, an imagined boundary, and that uh, bringing them together and allowing them to share values. Like, of course, this is a thing that's been going on for a long time. But the nation as an enterprise that every single person on earth is meant to belong to, and every part of the earth has to be nationalized, has to be given a kind of national space, has to belong to a nation, that is new. And he says that in his words, it is the magic of nationalism to turn chance into destiny. Nothing can escape the purview of the nation. Everything has to be mappable by the nation, made uh, explainable by the nation so that people do not become disillusioned with it. Because if it doesn't have the answers, people are going to be upset. Which is why, of course, with politicians who have the answers for everything, you should be very, uh, very skeptical because certainly nobody does. And so they are, of course, lying. So I mentioned earlier that the nation isn't totally new. And it borrows from two broad domains, and they are the religious community and the dynastic realm for Anderson. So firstly here, the religious community, like how does the religious community, how did religion motivate the formation of the nation? Well, for a long time, people would be bound by written scripture. So people in Europe, much of Europe would be bound by the Bible as the word of God. People in the Middle East bound by the Quran, uh, you know, as you know, another way to connect with God. People in India would be bound by the uh, the Vedas, you know, and and so on. Now Anderson suggests that they're by binding people in accordance with the word of God in the, in the Bible or in any other religious text. What is interesting about that is that it is ostensibly non-arbitrary. The signs used are non-arbitrary. And this is especially true if you consider um, like ideograms or pictorial representations of things in the world in order to convey language, in that they directly represent the thing that they are meant to convey. There's zero ambiguity. And when you bring people together in accordance with the word of God that is not up for debate, what that is doing and is setting the stage for is that very possible unity of people around something that is perceived to be wholly 100% true. Now, as religion began to lose force, and I say that with, you know, in kind of in air quotes, because of course we know religion is still very strong today, but as it ostensibly began to lose force, especially in Europe in the, uh, you know, the 18th, 
or 17th, 18th centuries, that very possibility of uniting people on the basis of a submission to certain rules and codes and language remained. And this could be taken up by the nation or by a burgeoning nationalism to unite people who had been separated because of the uh, demise of, of religion. And there were so many reasons for the demise of religion beyond just the Enlightenment. There was a splintering, especially with the emergence of Protestantism in Europe. Uh, colonial regimes started to encounter other religions, which shook the belief that there was one single religion, at least from the European perspective, and so on. Now, the second uh, earlier cultural system that nationalism borrowed from and emerged out of was the dynastic realm. And the dynastic realm, very much like religion, began to wane around the same time. So the dynastic realm being uh, monarchies, being, you know, uh, being families that just run a country or run uh, a territory, and it just passed down through generations. You know, stuff that is just monarchical, non-republican, that is not run by the people. Now, under pre-modern dynastic rule, borders were not so clearly defined as now. There were, of course, you know, before mapping, before uh, the ability to really set out through contractual agreement borders, there would be some leeway, there would be some interpretation as to which part of a territory belonged to somebody versus somebody else, or a family versus another family. And there was a lot of possible give and take with nations, be it through conquest, where or land would just be stolen, through uh, diplomatic marriage, land could just be given over quite easily and quickly. So dynasties and rulers began to be overthrown at, over time, you know, we think of um, I guess Marie Antoinette is one example, you know, of uh, the we think of the French Revolution throwing over the um, throwing over the government, if you call it a government, in favor of elected officials, uh, elected leaders that could run the world in accord the world, the country in accordance with the people's will. Now, these elected officials would need to actually have some kind of command over something that could be easily established. So there would be a necessity then to start to lay out, to be explicit, over what territory they were actually going to run. Because they didn't rule things with an iron fist. They couldn't just bully their neighbor into acting a certain way. There had to be, through the emergence of a kind of diplomacy, there needed to be more strict rules as to what qualified or how to proper, properly border your nation, decide where it began and where it ended. Now, beyond this, this decline in dynasties and in the religious community, there was another decline occurring, and that was the decline in the organization of, of time in accordance with divine providence, which is a complicated thing to say, and let me explain. So Anderson suggests that for much of history, time was previ previously structured and interpreted, understood as a simultaneous whole with no clear distinction between past and future. So in our age, however, what we are seeing is a new homogenous empty time that has emerged. And this is not a simultaneous sort of time as we saw previously. This is instead a linear time that is measured by clock and calendar. 
Now, the, these ideas are very difficult to grapple with because, you know, anybody with any kind of interrogative capacity would say, okay, according to whom? Who Did all people just think of time this way? Do all people think of time this way now? Who, who are we thinking of here? Um, which is, <laughs> I think, a question that derails this entire argument. But the idea was for Anderson that for a long time, stories, cultures, ideas were transmitted in such a way as to occur simultaneously, that is to happen in the immediate now, instead of being uh, cataloged, being contained, and transmitted later. So it was largely due to the printing press and print capitalism that allowed for a new emerging media to emerge, like the newspaper, like uh, the novel, that could represent time in a linear way, where events unfold between people who are often just assumed to be part of a nation and have certain sociological traits that are adapted to and attached to that nation, whereas previously events would unfold in storytelling in a in a chaotic aleatory an aleatory is random in a almost random way instead of following coherent threads and and channels now you know if you're thinking right now you're like well, you think of xyz example you think of the iliad the odyssey and so on you think of all of these different texts that seem to represent time linearly and that might be true and I'm, i'd be curious what anyone would have to say about this but the anyways i won't belabor the point any longer the idea here was that it was necessary for the formation of the imagination that is this new form of time what he calls a homogeneous empty time to emerge uh, in order for the possibility of different nations to have their own to command their own possible futures as being autonomous agents in the world with a history, that history dictating who they are today. And it's one that the nation constantly draws upon in order to revitalize itself, to say that, oh, well, our ancestors did X, Y, Z things, so therefore we have to do X, Y, Z things in the future, you have to fight for us, and so on. And this all contributes to the formation of nations as a... Uh, as an entity that you cannot refute, irrefutable entity. So the novel helps in this way because it joins otherwise disparate people, people who've never met each other. Uh, it joins them together over time and within an imagined community that situates them. And the people are always framed in sociological unity. And maybe here to think about this, we could think of the, the rom-com, the romantic comedy where there's, uh, in most cases, and you see these types of movies around Christmas time. If you're uh, if you're Christian, it's like pop up on Netflix where there's a woman who leave who's like le leads a very busy life uh, and goes and lives in, in like some city, and for some reason has to go visit like a family member in the country, uh, which is all part of the same nation, and meets some guy who's like a rugged dude. And of course, they hate each other at first, and then eventually they come together. And the point of this type of movie at least if I'm going to think about it according to Anderson, is that despite the fact that these people are radically different, they find a common ground 
insofar as they share certain tacit values and beliefs that are largely furnished to them by their shared values being in uh, a community setting in which they can have these connections. And the same, like there was this one, I can't remember what it's called. There's this one movie though, where um, this woman, God, I, I don't remember the details, but this woman leaves some city somewhere in, I think North America, it could have been in somewhere in Europe and goes to Africa, you know, undescript Africa, like some nation in Africa and meets uh, a fellow white guy there and they hit it off. And the idea here is that they are bound together by this guy just happened happen to also be there, that despite their being territorially different, they are bound together by this kind of sacred belief or the sacred idea that they share these values that make them suitable for one another, even though they are territor in territorially in different places. They are bound together by these these very sacred beliefs and values. Now, these are just examples to help illuminate this thing, how culture is transmitted through novels, through other popular culture. But Anderson also gives us the idea of the newspaper and how the newspaper contributed to all this, in that the, the newspaper reveals how nations and people are all part of one big story and are moving through time together. So as I mentioned earlier, print capitalism was largely responsible for the turn from religion, from dynasty, and the simultaneous conception of time to these imagined communities. And that puts us here into chapter three, the origins of national consciousness. So books were the first mass-produced commodity, and they were beginning to be transported all over Europe. Of course, the first book really mass-produced was the Bible. But by transmitting books all around the world and within Europe, people were able to to actually read the text for themselves, and it wasn't just reserved for priests or other religious figures to tell people what the book said. People could read it for themselves. So this was also the beginnings of the age of, the mechan of mechanical reproduction, as Benjamin writes about it, where there was suddenly a kind of democratization of knowledge. People could actually acquire knowledge and produce knowledge themselves without relying upon archaic traditional institutions to tell them how to understand the world, how to live in the world. And so he suggests that imagined communities were born out of the intersection of a system of production and productive relations, that is capitalism, and a technology of communications through print, the printing press, and the fatality of human linguistic diversity. So mass printing assembled languages together and laid the basis for national consciousness. Now, one thing mentioned there was the fatality of human linguistic diversity, where, and we'll talk about this more as we go on, but languages began to be homogenized, and differing languages with differing dialects began to gravitate to a single language. And there are, there are a few texts on this. One I'm thinking of is called The Discovery of France. There's also a book by Richard Robbins about the nation-state uh, where he writes that in France, before, you know, if we think of France in the 15th, 14th centuries, people in different villages didn't speak the same language. So you could go from one village to the next and not have any clue what anybody is saying. 
Now, what began to happen uh, over time with emerging technologies of transportation and communication, so like the railroad, like the telegraph, telephone, much later, what happened was languages started to gravitate towards the majoritarian language. And in the case of France, this was Paris. So people began to speak Parisian French in accordance with its central hub being Paris, from which all transport, all communications were to go from and to flow to. So by the vitality of human linguistic diversity, what he is saying is that differences in languages began to disappear in favor of just single languages. So now this puts us into chapter four called Creole Pioneers. We're going to consider as well more this language question as we go on. Now he considers in this chapter how the first nation states that sprouted in the Americas, or think about the first nation states that sprouted in the Americas in the 18th century. So despite popular belief, they weren't bound internally, these nations like among their, within their people, by a common language or a rising lower class. These played a part here. And I think it's important to state, in order to really understand this text, that Anderson is not suggesting that there was one specific reason for the emergence of the nation. There are number, a number of different factors that contributed to this, and each nation has its own history of becoming its nation. What he is really interested in is the broad paradigmatic shifts that occurred globally, where suddenly every single part of the earth had to adopt a nation, a nationality. And he muses as to why that's the case and attributes it to, to mostly the Enlightenment, European efforts at scientific empiricism and to try to um, develop mapping and control of the world and so on. Now, all of these contributed to this emerging nationalism. So when I say here that the people weren't bound together by common language, by uh, an emerging lower class, that doesn't mean that they didn't play a part in the formation of the nation. So colonial states here in the Americas, be they Spanish or English or French, were administrative bodies comprised of Europeans outside of Europe. So they were occupied by European people, but they, they weren't in Europe, obviously. They were so separate from Europe, however, as to permit their own organization and with these tools to successfully assert themselves to say that they are their own people. And that, you know, just think of the history of the United States, 1776, people saying there, uh, the English do not represent us. The English do not care about us. We should be our own state. Now, there were a number of factors for this in itself where Europeans believe themselves to be more pure, more linguistically, more racially pure than people in the Americas because they were as the term, as the chapter suggests, Creoles, they had been mixing. They were among what Europe believed to be uncivilized people, of course, as problematically as, as that is, and as, as horrible as that is. They believed that these Americans to be among less civilized people, so they were therefore less civilized. And this was partly due to an emerging scientific regime that sought to demarcate people, to sought to separate people on the basis of race. And to suggest that there was a kind of purity in races and, and a less pure spectrum or a less pure side of the racial spectrum 
Of course, this being reserved for people who were not white. Now, it's really no surprise then that people in the Americas would say that we don't want any part of this European nation or these European ideas that are just destroying uh, their reputation. Now, these people in the Americas weren't exactly kind to the indigen indigenous communities there either. Uh, of course, countless harms were inflicted, genocide against indigenous communities. But in any case, these narratives of European superiority to people in the Americas just contributed to a disdain of Europe and a desire to exert their own autonomy. And other factors too, like the entrance of the printing press in the Americas helped bring people together as well, where people could share information with each other, can spread propaganda about uh, Europe's eventual takeover, attempt to take over the, the rogue American states. But even at this time, let's say in 1776, in, in the late 18th century, when America was starting to embrace its autonomy from Europe, from, from Britain, there is no mention of the nation within the Declaration of Independence. There is just mention of the people. So there are all of these indicating factors, these um, kernels of the nation forming, but the nation as an idea hadn't fully emerged yet. Nationalism was not really the guiding thread here. Even though we see, we see the sprouts starting to, starting to emerge from, from the soil. And yeah, I'm going to stop this here. That'll put us into chapter five, titled Old Languages, New Models, where we'll take up next time. Uh, if you listen through this, thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed it. If there's anything I got wrong, anything I left out, I'd love to hear about it. You can tell me why I'm wrong, and I can pin the comment if you do it on YouTube. People can see uh, how I was wrong. And yeah, on that note, take care.